You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY podcast on iTunes as Senior Minister Adam Hale continues our Easter sermon series, The End is Just the Beginning, with this week's message, Helpless to be Empowered. Thank you for listening, and as always, we hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Have a wonderful week. It stops now. All right, let's just put it out there right now. Let's put it all on the table. It stops now. For too long, way, way too long, guys, us men, we have been the objects of hurtful and insensitive stereotypes. And it's got to stop today. These are promoted by those who are not guys. We won't name any genders. But there's this cruel stereotype, and it revolves around guys not wanting to stop and ask directions. You know, supposedly... I don't know if you all have ever done this, but supposedly we will drive hundreds of miles in the wrong direction while patient, all-knowing non-guys sit in the passenger seat and they nag us to, to stop at the next gas station and ask for directions or, or turn Siri on and ask for directions. You know, I really liked Siri when she first came out. Now she's not so much. And when that doesn't work, though, these non-guy people will say please will you you just do it for me and when that doesn't work they they resort to saying things like well we'll we'll never get there on time now as if that was the guy's fault because we were ready 30 minutes before we had to leave right they'll say things like why do you have to be so stubborn well how do how do I know this Because I, like many of you guys, have been victims of that specific stereotype. Until now. That is, because before your very eyes, I'm going to show you the research that blows that that stereotype out of the water. I have an article from American Psychologist, you can see here, very official looking article. And while I haven't actually read the article yet, I have full confidence that there are enough guy psychologists out there that will vindicate us so if you don't mind I'm just going to take a couple of moments and breeze through this and I'm going to skip over the big words because I don't know what that word means and and so I'm seeing that there there have been a number of studies that have been done over the last three decades so that's probably going to be very helpful for us all right I'm just going to skip down to the conclusion all right here's the big reveal of the article it says men are less likely to stop and ask for help All right, that's not what I was expecting. There's got to be something more to that. Maybe it's got some conclusions. All right, so here's some conclusions. It says, men are less likely to go to the doctor, and when they do go, they ask fewer questions and share fewer symptoms, and men are less likely to ask for help. All right, that wasn't helpful at all. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's true. Maybe guys do believe in self-reliance. We are taught, it's not our fault, we are taught by the guy half of our parents to to be self-reliant, to get things done our own, to to not throw like a girl. And so that's just the way we were raised. And and the study says that that we're just, we're less likely to ask for help. But, you know, that's part of our, our masculine charm, right? That's what, ladies, you all find so endearing about us. Now, we've all been there. We've all been driving down the road telling ourselves that, that, you know, as long as we've got gas in the tank, we're not lost, and that where we're looking for is going to be right around the next corner, and, and it's going to be right there, and, and we'll get there when we get there, right? That's just what we say. 
But why would we not just stop and ask for help? Well, because the good editors at American Psychologist, and there really is a group, uh, a journal called American Psychologist, and they really do have an article that says all of those things that I just read to you. They all know me and most of you very, very well. I am less likely to ask for help. Because if I can do anything in this world to tough things out, to, to get it done on my own, no matter how unlikely it is or how counterintuitive it is, I will do it. As long as I don't have to admit that I really do need some help. And most men, you're like that as well. It's, it's ingrained in our culture, and now this isn't just a, a man-woman thing. It is ingrained in our culture that we're supposed to take care of, of business on our own. That's, um, we, we pride ourselves in, in pulling ourselves up by the bootstrap, so to speak, and, and getting things done, right? Maybe that's why one of the most beloved of all Bible verses isn't actually in the Bible. You all know this little gem. God helps those who... Right. It's not actually in the Bible. But we quote it as if it is. We live by it. We love that little verse. We put it on cross-stitch patterns and we hang it up in our, in our living rooms. And, and we treat this little saying as if it's biblical. Maybe, maybe God forgot to put it in there, right? Because this should be in the Bible, right? Maybe God forgot to put this little thing, this little uh, saying in there. I don't think so. In fact, I think there's a better explanation for it than God helps those who help themselves. In fact, I think it's just the opposite is true, is that God helps those who can't help themselves. God helps those who cannot help themselves. God helps those who stop in the midst of a crisis and ask someone to help them. When we're, when we're helpless and we know it, when we're open to receive the help that God is, is willing to give us, when we come to that point of, of brokenness that is the only way to wholeness, we find Jesus there waiting to give us the help that we so desperately need. God helps those who can't help themselves. John chapter 5 tells one of the many biblical stories that proves this point. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip over to John chapter 5. In this story, we're going to see a man who has been crippled for 38 years. Nearly 40 years this man has, has not been able to walk. Think about that. For nearly 14,000 days, he was incapable of walking, incapable of going anywhere that he wanted, incapable of doing all the things that, that he needed to do. That's a lengthy season of helplessness. Now, there might have been a time where, where he dreamed of a miracle. Maybe there was a time, especially if he was inflicted with this as a child, where, where he laid in bed and dreamed of a miracle. He dreamed that, you know, tomorrow's going to be the day where, where my legs are strong enough to walk and I'm going to run and I'm going to do all the things that kids do and, and tomorrow's going to be the day. And tomorrow never came. And so for 38 years, this man has been crippled. His spirit, no doubt hardened by this point in his life. He stopped praying. He has stopped uh, hoping. And he's accepted the reality that he is helpless. And it's in this state of, help, uh, of hopelessness that he encounters Jesus. Now this man, he spent his days in a public place. He was lying on one of the five covered uh, porches at the pool of Bethesda that's there in Jerusalem. And, 
And for many years, scholars believed that this place didn't actually exist. There were some skeptics, and they said that, that we have no evidence to suggest that this place actually exists until the 19th century. Some archaeologists in the 19th century discovered what they believed to be the Pool of Bethesda, and guess what? It's exactly the way that John describes it. They found it exactly the same way. Now, one of the things that was interesting about this pool is it was associated with healing. In fact, in your Bibles, you may even have a little footnote that will tell you that, that there was a legend or a myth that would say that the angel, an angel would come down from heaven and it would stir the waters. And when the waters were stirred, whoever was the first to get into this pool would be healed. And so this pool, this pool of Bethesda, was a magnet for, for sick and hurting people, for people who were disabled, people who were blind, who, who just could not do life the way that everybody else did. This was a place for helpless people. And they came and they watched for a change in the waters. And as a 38-year-old pool dweller, this man was a local institution. This man had been there for 38 years. You know, every, every town, especially small towns, towns like Glendale, we have uh, people who are just part of the fabric of our, our community, right? People that just make up the, the, the downtown essence of our, of our place. And this guy is that guy. He's well known. He, people have been passing him by for so many years. They know who this guy is. They know his story. But you have to wonder about his motives at this point. Is he still struggling toward those waters whenever, whenever the water is stirred? After all of this time, I mean, he's been there for 38 years. We picture him and think, sure, you know, on some earlier day when he first came, when he first came to this pool, he would have believed, yeah, today's going to be my day. When I see the water stirred, I'm going to move and I'm going to get there and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be healed. Today's going to be my day. And if it's not, well, then maybe... Maybe some passerbyers will, will drop a few coins in, in my hand and, and I'll get by till tomorrow. But then the next day, that's going to be the day that is going to be my day. But after enough years, enough days go by and enough years pass, his inner Joel Osteen has probably been silenced. He's all but rooted to that spot now. He expected nothing but the coins of the people that passed him by. That's how he makes his living now. Hopelessness was just part of the scenery for him. And Jesus sees the man. Jesus knows his story, and, then it, and he asks him a question. And this question, it, it, it seems like an odd question. It seems kind of like a question that's, that's upside down. Because we've been, you know, we've been talking about for the last two weeks that Jesus would say things that seemed backwards to us or seemed upside down to us that didn't seem to make quite quite all sense but here Jesus asks a question that when we uh, we read it it seems like a simple enough question but knowing that this man has been there for 38 years it's kind of a silly question let's read what it says John chapter 5 verses 5 and 6 John says one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years and when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time he asked him do you want to get well do you want to get well? Now that seems like a strange thing to ask again because the man has been at this pool of healing for 38 years. He spends all of his time, he's severely handicapped and spends all of his time hanging out by this pool. Of course he wants to be healed. That's like asking a guy that goes to the gym and works out, hey, do you want to be in shape? Or, or if we were to ask Gilligan, hey, do you want to get off the island? Of course the answer is yes, right? It seems like a really silly question. Unless, 
It's a loaded question. You know, the longer I'm in ministry, the more that I begin to understand the question that Jesus asked this man. Because the answer isn't really all that self-evident. There are lots of people who, who hang around the waters who have no interest in actually being healed. There are a lot of people who come to church and have no interest in God's help in their life. People do lots of things for lots of reasons, and most of which aren't always obvious ones. Sometimes they might not even understand their own motives. And so Jesus gets right to the issue here. He says, you've been stuck in neutral for a while. Do you want something better? Do you want to get well? Or, or are you content to continue to live this life? Are you content to lay here and, and live like you've been laying for 38 years? You've not been able to expand your horizons. You've not been able to do what you want to do. Are you, are you content here? Or do you want something better? Who wouldn't want help? Who wouldn't want help? Well, someone that's afraid of change. That's who. The man was, has been sick for a long time at a point approaching nearly four decades. It's the only life that he has known. He may not have liked it, but it's the life that he's known, and he has learned to survive as a beggar. He has learned to make do with what he has. It, again, it may not be the life, that, the ideal life, the life that he dreamed that he would have, but it's the life that he has, and he's, he's accepted that this is just how it's going to be. His home was his mat, his community is the pool. He was who he was. And, you know, I just find it amazing about what people learn to endure, what people will, will endure. But here's the, here's the reality. Let's just be honest with each other. There's a little bit of, uh, of that man. There's a little touch of that man in each of us. We accept a lot of things that we know could be better. And we say things like, well, that's just the way life is. Right? As if that makes it true or if that makes it etched in stone that, that nothing can be done about it. We decide God must want us here because if God didn't want us here, he, He'd move us somewhere else, right? He, he'd make something else happen. And so in other words, we blame God. It's God's fault that we're in the situation that we're in. And if it's God's fault, then why would we want to ask Him for help? And so after a while, we just get used to things. We get used to the way things are. A limited life is, is less frightening than the thought of change. Resignation is better than disappointment. You know, Christy and I had been married for about two years when I had to have uh, another knee surgery. I'd had a couple in high school, and I had to have one more after we got married. And it was the first one that I'd had since we'd been married. And I had torn some meniscus and needed to have it repaired. And, and Christy, she's always been really good at taking care of me, but especially taking care of the kids. But, but let's be honest, men, we, we like to portray that we're big manly men and we can do whatever we want. But there's something about us that really likes to have that extra attention, you know, when our wife decides to, to, to make over us a little bit and, and give us that extra attention, we, we really like that as much as we would never admit to it. Well, I'm laid up on the couch, my knees heavily wrapped, swollen as all get out, and she would bring me a Mountain Dew or a sandwich or whatever I wanted, and when she would leave for work, she would make sure that, there, you know, that the, TV was, the TV remotes were close by, that they were just within an arm's reach, that my crutches were nearby, that... It, that I had books to read, I had everything that I could want to entertain myself for the time that she was going to be gone. And when she'd get home, she'd, she'd readjust the pillows that were propping my knee up, and, and she, would, she would do all of those kind of things just to, to take care of me. She'd encourage me when I was doing my physical therapy, and she'd say things like, you know, it won't be long and you'll be back to normal, or, or you'll have your bounce back soon. But honestly, 
I wasn't so sure that I wanted my bounce back. I mean, I was learning that there were things be there were things better than having my bounce. There were things like attention and sympathy from my wife, and I liked not having to do anything for myself and letting someone else do for me. Did I want to get well? Not particularly. You know, fear of change can be highly motivating, but also ultimately limiting. Why wouldn't we want help? People that people that fear change. Don't, don't want help, but someone who's also in denial of reality. Those, that's people that don't want help. I imagine that after so many years, the man at the pool no longer had a healthy idea of what life could be if he stood on his own and if he moved around and took ownership of his life. Time did his thing, but so did the environment. His, he spent every day and every night surrounded by people who, who were just like him, who were hurting people, who were helpless people. He, he didn't know what life looked like anymore outside of the five pillars of of that pool his horizons his his world they were all limited by as by as far as people would be willing to carry him he spent so much time around unhealthy people that unhealthy became his new normal you know there's this documentary about a 34 year old woman who had a 300 pound tumor removed you did not mishear me. I said this 34-year-old woman had a 300-pound tumor removed. It was twice the size of her initial body weight. As the filmmakers documented the surgery, it was clear that they wondered why she had never sought help, why she had never gone to the doctor, why she was waiting so long to, to have this tumor removed. And so they would ask her things like that. Why, you know, why did you wait so long? And all she could really say was, I just thought it would go away on its own. You know, that tumor was unique, but that attitude, not so much. We, we figure the same things. We think that things will just go away on their own if we, if we ignore them, if we don't pay attention to them, if, if we just kind of sweep them under the rug, things will, will get better. But, you know, look at our finances. We figure that our finances will sort themselves out over time, but the credit card debt keeps piling up and we still keep spending. The tumor is growing we figure that our, our teenagers will, will change their behavior and they'll get with the program, right? But, but meanwhile, our, our teenage daughters are starting to cut themselves and hang out with, with uh, an unhealthy group of kids. Our, our teenage boys, they're going off and doing God knows what with God knows who. And, and we just keep thinking, you know, I'm, we're just going to be patient with them. We're just going to be patient with them. The, they'll, they'll eventually figure things out on their own. And yet, day by day, they're moving farther and farther and farther away from God. The tumor is growing. We figure the problems in our marriage, will, they'll just fade away on their own it's, if we don't address them. And who needs help anyway? I mean, it's stuff that all husbands and wives go through, and, and it's nobody else's business really at all anyway. And so, so we're just going to ignore it. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to ask for help. And within a few months, couples are sleeping in separate rooms. She's feeling an attraction to someone at work. He's off uh, looking at pornography and and. And everybody's moving in opposite directions. The tumor is growing. Here's a sad reality. Is that most couples who, who are having marital issues, by the time that they actually ask, uh, decide to go get help, by the time they decide to come see a marriage counselor or a pastor and ask for help, it's too late. They wait too long. Um, in fact, I will tell you that when at the last church I was at, I got to a point where I said, okay, I'm not doing any more marriage counseling. 
because most of, I had three couples within a year and a half come to me to ask for some help, and they had already made up their minds what they were going to do, and they were looking for someone to rubber stamp their, their divorce. That's what they were looking for. I said, okay, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore because you don't want help. You want somebody to approve, somebody to justify your decisions. Why not ask for help? There are times when we approach the tipping point of brokenness when we're tired of the anxiety and we realize it's time to seek help. But we've waited a long time. And the situation has gone from bad to worse. So we have second thoughts. That woman with the tumor, she knew that tumor wasn't going anywhere. She knew it wasn't going anywhere. It was clear she needed a little bit of help. But the size of this tumor, it was embarrassing. And once she asked for help, there would, there would be medical people staring at her like she was some sort of museum exhibit. There would be all these questions, and there would be nowhere for her to hide. The hiding was over. And the longer she waited, the worse the humiliation would be. We feel deep shame. And the idea of public shame, well, that's just unthinkable. We live under the tyranny of what other people think because we're prideful people. And pride demands a terrible, terrible price. And we'll suffer. We'll suffer as long as we think we can possibly stand it. As long as we can suffer quietly without other people knowing about it. Jesus asked the simplest kind of question. The kind that can be answered with a yes or a no. Do you want to get well? And the man's answer, it's not yes or no. That's what Jesus asked. He asked a yes or no question, and the man doesn't give him that kind of response. John 5, 7, it records his response. Here's what he says. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. When Jesus asks this question, what he's really doing is he's calling into question the motives of this man. And when his motives are questioned, this man launches into his well-worn excuses. And it all boils down to, he, he says what his excuses are, but it all boils down to two words. I can't. That's his excuse, I can't. There's a book called, the, called Happiness is a Choice. And it's devoted to overcoming depression. In it, the authors discuss the tendency of Christians to say, I can't. When they, when they find themselves confronted with, with different obstacles, most of the time we retreat to the, those two words, I can't, I can't do this. That's, uh, that's one of our popular phrases. The authors write about how they cringe when they hear Christians who are confronted with different obstacles in life and they, and they say, I can't, when really what they should be saying is, I won't. And there's a big difference. There's a world of difference between I can't and I won't. When working with a man who says, I just can't get along with my wife, the authors of the book say they would make him rephrase it and say, I, I won't get along with my wife. When working with a woman who has a spending problem, uh, they would, who, and she would say, I just can't control my spending, they would make her rephrase it and say, I won't control my spending. They believe that the sooner people understand the place of their own free will, the sooner they can begin to move toward a cure. Now, I, I want to be clear about this because it is true that sometimes people hide behind the words, I can't. There are times when people do that. But we should add a qualification here. We should add a qualifier because we have to admit when there, that there are occasions when people really can't. This series has, has been about, about experiencing brokenness that leads to wholeness, which is, which is where real life in Christ begins. 
And we can make choices to align ourselves with, with that opportunity, but there are also realities that force us to say, I'm at the end of myself, and I can't do this life on my own without Jesus. I can't handle the problem of my own sin. I can't rise and walk on my own. Even then, we have to ask for help. The man by the pool, he could have done certain things, surely, but, but, in the, but in the end, it was only Jesus that could help him. The man had been there for 38 years. You would think at, at some point he could have made it into the water, right? But he couldn't. He didn't. And in the end, it was only Jesus who could help him. And it was a positive statement, not a negative one to say, I can't, but Jesus, you can. Now, it may seem odd to us that Jesus would uh, heal a man whose motives he questions. And, and that's what he does here. He questions his motives. So often in Scripture, we see where, where Jesus would heal a, uh, heal a person who showed pure faith. He would reward their faith. You know, the, the Roman centurion who said, hey, if you'll just, if you'll just say my, my daughter is healed, then, then she'll, be, she'll be okay. The woman who reached out and, and touched the hem of his garment, she knew that if I, if I just touch his garment, I'll be healed. Jesus seems to reward those who, who show that kind of faith. That, that he could do it without them even asking. This man, he probably could have gotten some help. I mean, he had been there for almost four decades. You would have thought at least at some point along the, along the time that somebody would have said, hey, you know, all right, today's going to be your day. We're, we're gonna, you've been here so long, we're going to let you get in the water. Today's your day. But it never happened. It never happened. He, for all we know, he never asked anybody to take him to the water. He never, he never tried. He just assumed that, that nobody would. And here's the, the, the great thing, is that even though his story is more than a little sketchy, and it is, it's sketchy, and even though he makes excuses, he knows that he is broken. And Jesus doesn't look at him and say, you know what, you're, you're, you had 38 years to get this right. I'm not, I'm not healing you. you you're, you're worthless. Jesus doesn't look at him and say that. Jesus simply says, okay, do you want to be well? See, that's the good news in the story for us is that we don't have to audition for, for the help of Jesus. We don't have to audition for Jesus' help. All we have to do is to bring him our helplessness, and he meets us right there in our brokenness and our helplessness and our hopelessness. And the man does all that Jesus asked him to do. And right there, for the first time in 38 years, he stands on his own two feet. No longer helpless. The boundaries of his world have been these five columns at the pool, but now it's as far as he can see. It's as far as his legs, his strong legs, will take him. Jesus addresses the man's helplessness in two ways. First, he heals the man through divine power. And then secondly, he empowers the man to obey his command to stand up and walk. Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Three action verbs, one sentence, and a life-changing moment for, for this man. And it's all directly tied to the call of Jesus. Make no mistake about it, it's Jesus who does the healing here. It's not, this, it's not a mystical pull, it's Jesus that does the healing, and it's a divine healing. But Jesus always gives us something to obey. We don't participate in the divine power, but we can participate in the obedience. If, if, if the man had just laid there on his mat, would he have been healed? I don't think so. I don't know, but I don't think so. Because there was an, there was an action that Jesus told him to do. He said, get up. 
pick up your mat and walk. In other words, do something. If you want this, do something. There was a call to obedience. And while we may not participate in the divine power, we certainly can participate in obedience. And it doesn't matter if you've been helpless for 38 years, 76 years, or only 38 seconds. God doesn't have any time limits. In fact, God doesn't have any limits at all. But He does have a favorite time. And that time is right now. Why ask? Why not ask for help now? Maybe it's because the voices around you are saying now it's, it's not the time or, or it's too late or it's too embarrassing or, or just ignore it and it'll work itself out. Maybe one of those voices is your voice. Maybe, maybe you're thinking, I've, I've drifted too far the wrong way. I've gone too many miles in the wrong direction. I can't possibly turn around now. But here's the deal. There is no distance. There is no time limit. There is no reason at all. Jesus will come to you when, when you are broken. He will come to you when you are helpless, when you are hopeless, when you are out of power and you say, this is not the end. This is just the beginning. The man in John 5 learned that even 38 years wasn't too late. For two close friends of Jesus, Mary, and Martha, death itself wasn't even past the deadline. They expected Jesus to come to him uh, to them when Lazarus was sick, but Lazarus got sicker and sicker and he died. And they, they buried him. They, they put him in the grave. And then Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, he gives a command pretty similar to the one that he gave to the man at the pool. He says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus got up out of the grave and came out. As Jesus hung on the cross, a thief a few feet away from him also hanging on a cross. And, and there's just not much more helpless than you can be when, when you're bound to a cross. And you're watching people hurl insults at you and mock you. And, and, and there's some irony in that, right? That Jesus and a criminal, they're, they're leaving the world together. And against all the odds, the thief asked Jesus for help because he somewhat, somehow, someway understood that it wasn't too late. Jesus admits him to heaven right there on the spot. The man surely had lived a terrible life. He was getting what he deserved. And in the last tiny fraction of a percentage of his life, Jesus said, I forgive you. Enter into the presence of the Father, and I'll go with you. I'll walk with you. It's not too late. It's never been too late. And there's never been a better time, a more perfect time, than the present moment. That's always the one in which Jesus wants us to meet Him, in the present moment. It's always the, the time when He wants us to ask Him for help. The life that you have, the life that you think you, you are living, that you think you have to accept, you don't. You just have to ask for help. And the more helpless you are, the better. The more open you'll be to, help, to the help that only Jesus can give you. In your helplessness, in your brokenness, God, Jesus, will meet you. God doesn't help those who can help themselves. He helps those who can't help themselves. There's not a thing I could do about my sin. Not a thing. And yet Jesus helped me. And he wants to help all of us. In fact, for most of us in this room, he has helped us. When we were utterly helpless. And there's a world of people out there that need help. And so we have to ask the question, do you want to get well?
Maybe this morning you're here and you're, you've been, I don't know, whatever. You, you've, you've been living this life and, and you just you go through the motions. And, and so I want to ask you that question. Do you want to get well? Do you want to be better? Do you want something more? If you do, ask Jesus for help because he'll provide it. He'll give you all the help that you need. He'll give you everything that you need. We, we think about things that we want, but Jesus answers in terms of what we need. And what we need is His grace and His forgiveness. And He's willing to give that. So this morning, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. A, we're going to have a, a moment of invitation. And so if you need to ask for help, don't be too proud to ask for it. Step out and, and ask for it. Maybe you need to ask Jesus for the first time for that help that, that will find salvation. We'd love to talk to you about what that looks like for you. What, how, how do you get that help? Maybe, maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you've just been, like I said, you've been drifting for a long time. And you, just, you need to turn around. You need some help turning around. We'd love to pray with you and, and, and help you do that. So we're going to offer an invitation. And if you need to to make a decision we just ask that you step out do you want to get well that's the question jesus asked the man i think that's the question he asked us today let's stand as we sing